warp speed? President Trump sets an ambitious timeline for a vaccine. We think we're going to have a vaccine in the pretty near future. But is that realistic? And how can Americans feel safe going out in the meantime? Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar joins me next. And in the hole, states take more gradual steps to reopen, but warn without more federal aid, the financial consequences for Americans will be dire. The federal government must do more to help support these states. Congress uh, has spent a lot of money. There's a need for that. I'll speak to California Governor Gavin Newsom and Ohio Governor Mike DeWine in moments. Plus, Friday night firing. President Trump cuts loose yet another inspector general, a fourth. This time, one who was investigating his secretary of state. But will any of his Republican allies act? Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson joins me to discuss next. Hello, I'm Jake Tapper in Washington, where the State of Our Union is opening. This morning, there are nearly 89,000 Americans dead from the coronavirus. The speed at which this virus has killed is just horrifying. Just two months ago, the number of dead was 87. But as the death count continues to rise, life during this pandemic is beginning to change. The majority of states across the U.S. are now beginning to take steps to reopen as the number of new cases across the country, new cases, is falling. While the nation grapples with how to balance reopening and staying safe, former President Obama made rare public comments criticizing American leadership in two different televised commencement addresses. More than anything, this pandemic has fully finally torn back the curtain on the idea that so many of the folks in charge know what they're doing. A lot of them aren't even pretending to be in charge. The criticism from Obama comes at a time when President Trump and his team are launching an unprecedented smear campaign against any rival, leveling wild and false allegations against critics in the media and political rivals that range from bizarre false conspiracy theories to spreading false allegations of pedophilia to even suggesting one TV anchor committed murder. These smear campaigns are unmoored from reality. They're deranged and indecent. They seem designed, at least in part, to distract us from this horrific health and economic crisis. And it is that pandemic that we're gonna focus on today. Joining me now to talk about the pandemic, the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar. Secretary Azar, uh, a pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining us. Let me ask you, 48 states will have eased restrictions in some form or another by tomorrow. It's unclear how many of these states have actually met the White House task force guidelines to begin phase one. But I want you to take a look at some of the images we're seeing around the country. A a crowded bar in Wisconsin, a boardwalk in New Jersey, uh, another crowded bar in Ohio. Does it concern you as health secretary to see these images? Is the U.S. reopening in a way that won't bring back a spike in new cases and deaths in a few weeks? Well, Jake, thanks to the president's historic response efforts here and the collaborative work of governors and our heroic healthcare workers on the front lines, we are in a position to be able to reopen. Now, the president has left it up to states to know their local situation uh, the best. And so it's very hard to judge in any community whether a bar being open, a restaurant, a school is the right thing. That's why the local leaders lead this, the states supervise it, and the federal government provides expertise and support from our level. It depends so much on what the disease burden is. You know, in almost half of our reporting counties, we've had not a single death. 62% of our COVID cases uh, come in just 2% of the reporting counties in the United States. So these are very localized determinations. There should not be one size fits all approaches to reopening, but reopen we must because it's not health versus the economy. It's actually health versus health. There are serious health consequences to keeping us shut down, whether it's uh, the the suicidality rates or if it is cardiac procedures not being received, cancer screenings, pediatric vaccinations declining. All of these are critical health needs that are part of reopening the economy. But in a crowded city like, I'll just pick one from, for example, uh, from Columbus, Ohio, Uh, The U.S. Surgeon General is saying if you go out, wear a mask, practice social distancing. You see these images from crowded bars in places like Columbus. They're not wearing masks. They're not practicing social distancing. That doesn't concern you? 
I think in any individual instance, you're going to see people uh, doing things that are irresponsible. That's part of the freedom that we have here in America. Uh, we can give guidance, as the Surgeon General did. Uh, part of this is going to be if you're in crowded areas and if you're in an area that has ongoing spread of community, community spread of disease, there's steps you should take. That's where our guidance is there for, and we count on local leaders to implement and interpret that according to the local situation, but we've got to get this economy and our people out and about working, going to school again, because there are serious health consequences to what we've been going through. Yeah, I don't think anyone disputes that we need to, to take steps to reopen. It's just a question of whether we're doing so responsibly. Let me ask you, this is, this is intriguing to me because some states have been aggressive with reopening despite predictions of potentially dire consequences from some health experts. <clears throat> Pardon me. I, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of states such as Georgia or Colorado. Um, they began reopening weeks ago, and it seems at least so far that we have not seen a dramatic spike in new cases from those two states, Georgia and Colorado. What have you seen from those states? Is there any cause for concern that they reopened early? Uh, is it still too early to tell? Or are they taking measures such as social distancing and masks that, that make this reopening work? Yeah, Jake, I think your question is very insightful. We, we are seeing that in areas that are opening, uh, we're not seeing the spike in cases. Uh, we still see spikes in some areas that are in fact closed, very localized situations. Um, and so this is gonna be really important for us to watch the, the circumstances on the ground. But you know, with reopening, what's the key to reopening? First, we need to have good surveillance. So we need to look for influenza-like illness and other respiratory disease. We've got a great surveillance system for that. We look for spikes in early indicators. We surge our, we have adequate testing capacity. We surge that in. We need to make sure anybody who's symptomatic is tested and that we have adequate asymptomatic surveillance in areas of greatest burden, senior living, uh, congregate uh, living situations like prisons uh, or meatpacking facilities where people are close together. So we look for early indicators and then we use the traditional public health tools to surge in there. We would test everybody there. We would do contact tracing and isolation. And that's where places like Georgia and Colorado, as they reopen, it's these tools that allow us to be reopened, but do so in a safe way uh, that, that lets the economy function, but it allows us to use the traditional tools of public health to move forward as we would with any other disease. Well, let's talk about um, surveillance testing and contact tracing because the White House has been able to keep its workers and you and President Trump and others uh, who go to the White House safe uh, because that you are conducting at the, at the White House regular testing, surveillance testing, contact tracing. That would be a great way to keep, as you note, a meatpacking plant or a retirement home safe. Regular testing, surveillance testing, contact tracing. But when are the rest of us going to be able to get that same kind of protection that the White House gets? Because I don't think that there is that level of testing at the most uh, vulnerable places, like you're talking about prisons, uh, meatpacking plants, nursing homes. Well, so that's actually part of the ongoing plans for the country that uh, that you have targeted, but you don't, the notion that you would test 330 million Americans every single morning to see whether they have COVID is neither realistic nor seriously treated by any public health experts. Listen, even at the White House, not everybody is tested every day. It's only if you're going to be in direct proximate contact with the president or vice president are you tested every day. And I think you, Jake, would agree that those are two roles in our constitutional system that are quite unique. Um, the rest of us, that doesn't happen unless I'm in proximity with, with him that day. Um, for our meatpacking facilities, for our nursing homes, um, we are actually deploying testing out there. We're getting rapid tests out there. We're connecting them with LabCorp and Quest to make sure that they can get testing in those congregate settings. Again, as part of syndromic surveillance systems that will be our early warning signs of disease spread and enable us to surge in through our state and CDC resources to contain outbreaks. So we're gonna be moving, as we did, we moved from containment in February to mitigation in March. We're gonna be progressively moving from mitigation back to containment, outbreak, circle, contain, and, and control situations like that. I don't think anybody expects that we're all gonna be given the same health benefits as the President of the United States, the Commander-in-Chief, of course. But I do think if we are trying to get our economies open, we're trying to reopen schools. Let's just take schools as an example. If, for example, I have two children. If my two children went back to school in September and every 
student, every teacher, every person who worked at that school were tested before they could go in. And then the ones who tested positive would be isolated. And then a test like that happened, I don't know, every month. I would feel a a lot more secure about sending my kids to school if there was that kind of aggressive testing Mm -hmm. for that school. Now, I'm not saying every American should be tested every morning. Of course not. But every health official I've talked to, including you, says there needs to be more aggressive surveillance testing. When are we going to get up to the level where people can have some peace of mind about, I know I can go back to work because we tested everybody before we went back to work and we isolated people and we do this every month now or something like that. When are we going to be able to do a widespread broad-based surveillance testing and contact tracing for every American. Yep. So so we are, in fact, doing that now. We've had over 10 million tests done. We're at, you know, the public health experts say to as a gauge of whether you have adequate testing for surveillance purposes, you want to be seeing a positivity rate of 10% or below. Nationwide, we're at 9%. Uh, 38 of our states are at, are at that 10% or below goal. The others are progressing towards that. So we're going to have 12.9 million tests administered as the projection just the coming weeks doing 300,000 tests a day. And we're gonna be bringing online something, Jake, that I think is quite exciting, which is gonna be these antigen tests, which are uh, rapid tests, antigen tests, sort of a, the look would be more like a pregnancy test, you know, on a, uh, it's called a lateral flow device. Um, and we are working with manufacturers on approving those. Those are very high volume point of care tests. And so that's gonna be also part of the recipe for the future for those kinds of situations, like you rightly say, as a parent, um, those concerns for our nursing homes, for our prisons, for our meatpacking facilities uh, to aid us with broad surveillance and testing. So, you know, President Trump has, over the last couple of months, delivered just a historic transformation of testing um, that's now become one of the models in the world with the most most tests administered of any country in the world. Um, And we're really on the right track here for the future. Okay, I don't want to belabor the point, but 10 million tests over the course of three and a half months is, is not sufficient for 328 million people. And I know you know that it needs to increase. I want to ask about the vaccine because that was a big focus for the administration this week. President Trump, at that same press conference, press event in which you were heralding, um, the administration was heralding uh, the possibility of a vaccine by the end of the year. The president said, quote, vaccine or no vaccine, we're back, unquote. For Americans who are listening to the president, can you explain in practical terms what he means when he says we're back? I mean, will we still need to wear masks? Uh, can we have weddings or large gatherings? Will grandparents be able to, to visit new grandchildren? How are we back? Yeah, so what the president was making the point on is everything does not depend on a vaccine. We're committed to delivering a vaccine. We're going to put the full power of the U.S. government and our private sector towards getting to a vaccine. But that's one part of a multifactorial response program. First is the testing that we talked about before, test symptomatic people, broad surveillance to find cases, surge into contain. Also therapeutics, you know, we're we're driving forward on convalescent plasma to be able to treat people. What we'll do then is take hypoimmunoglobulin from that plasma and create concentrated protective immunity for individuals. We've got over 20 monoclonal antibodies that would effectively allow us to replicate in an individual the immune response from somebody who's already recovered from COVID. That, and then if we deliver a vaccine, it's a multifactorial approach here that help us get our lives back to normal, get the disease burden down and use traditional public health tools so we have our wedding, so we visit our grandparents, so we resume normal life at school, at work, and at life. Secretary Azar, you were saying that our testing is now the model of the world, but I have to ask, the United States has less than 5% of the world's population, but the United States has also almost 30% of the world's officially reported coronavirus deaths. You said back in January that, quote, the risk is low. Our job is to work to keep it that way. So did the U.S. government fail? Why is this virus hitting our country so much harder than it's hitting other countries? So first, just in terms of the actual case counts, we are testing more than other countries or than other major countries. And so we're, we're seeing a tremendous number of cases. Remember, we're actually flushing out significant asymptomatic individuals in the United States. Other countries are not testing asymptomatic individuals in any in any way like what we're doing. Look, for instance, at Japan, um, which has a very low case count, but does very little testing on individuals. Um, in fact, I think you have to be several 
several days uh, febrile uh, in order even to get a test there. So that leads to a significant difference. What did the president do here? We defined in January a core strategic objective. We said, I said this very clearly, we cannot hermetically seal off the United States from a virus. This virus will spread, this virus will come here. We said our goal is to delay the curve and to flatten the curve. And that is exactly what we did through the historic border control measures and then through our work working with our healthcare systems and our governors, our heroic frontline healthcare workers, that while, while the burden has been tragic and terrible, it has remained within our healthcare system's capacity. As the president said, we haven't had any individuals to our knowledge who had to die because they didn't have a ventilator or didn't have an ICU bed. Um, and that's a really important measure of healthcare system resilience uh, and that's what's enabling us now to do, as we've talked about, move towards reopening and getting back towards a normal state. I understand that, but we have more, you know, we have almost 90,000 Americans who are now dead because of this. I don't think that this is anything to celebrate, how oh, we handle this as a country. Jake, you can't celebrate a single death. Uh, every death is a tragedy, um, but the results could have been vastly, vastly worse. Um, it's also important to remember, Jake, as we as but we it's face worse it, for us than it is for anyone else. No, that's actually not factually correct. When you look at mortality rates, that's simply not correct as a percent of diagnosed cases, Jake. Um, that every death I'm is just tragic. At the number but of dead bodies. Every, every, every death is tragic, but we have maintained our healthcare, our healthcare burden within the capacity of our system to actually deal with it. Unfortunately, the American population is a very diverse and, and it is a it is a population with significant unhealthy comorbidities that do make many individuals in our communities, in particular African-American, minority communities, um, particularly at risk here uh, because of significant underlying disease health disparities and disease comorbidities. And that is an unfortunate legacy of, in our healthcare system uh, that we certainly do need to address. Um, but, uh, but, but no, the, uh, the response here in the United States has, has been historic to keep this within our healthcare capacity, even in New York and New York City, to keep this within capacity is genuinely um, a, a historic result. I, I want to give you an opportunity to clear it up because it sounded like you were saying that the reason that there are so many dead Americans is because we're unhealthier than the rest of the world. And I know that's not what you meant. Oh, um, no, I think that there's, I mean, there, the, we have significant, we have a significantly disproportionate burden of comorbidities in the United States, obesity, um, hypertension, diabetes. These are demonstrated facts that make, that do make us at risk for any type of disease burden. Sure, of, of um, course, but that doesn't mean it's the fault of the American people that oh my our goodness. government failed oh my to goodness. Jake, take Jake. adequate steps in February. Oh, no, Jake, please, please don't, Please don't distort. No, but this is not about fault. It's about simple, simple epidemiology and stating that if we have hypertension, if we have diabetes, uh, we present with greater risk of severe complications from corona, from this coronavirus. That's that's all I was saying. And you, you and you know that this is not one doesn't blame an individual for their health conditions. That would be that 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 that, that would be absurd. It's simply a statement that um, that we do have greater risk profiles here in the United States. And this is this is why we've all highlighted the Surgeon General. Um, uh, the president, we've highlighted the, the special disease burden and risk factors um, in, in a lot of our communities that we've got to address. Yeah, no, of course, no one would dispute that. L let me ask you one last question. There's a lot of disinformation out there, as you know. Um, last night on cable, someone said that the shutdowns that the states have taken, the, the governors, are just an effort to hurt President Trump by preventing him from holding rallies. The same person said the day after Election Day, the virus will disappear. Um, I know you know that's not true. What's your response to that? I just think we need to have balanced, accurate information out there. That's all I and our public health leaders are trying to do is to present uh, the fact that uh, we're now in a position where we can be reopening. Uh, we want to take safe and appropriate measures. The president has laid out very balanced criteria and approaches that he suggests states follow to do that. Uh, and that's the path Then that's the path forward that we need to take. And I, I, I think hyperbolic rhetoric on, on any side is not appropriate. This is, these aren't partisan issues. This is just health and economic welfare for our, for our citizens. Exactly. But you would agree that governors did not take these steps to, to shut down uh, their states because they were trying to hurt President Trump. They were trying to protect the lives of their citizens. I find that I find that it's better not to try to impugn individuals' motives. The president, the vice president, and I have had superb working relationships with the governors across this country, uh, from whether red state or blue state. Uh, we've been all been working in partnership to try to help the American people, um, and we're going to keep doing that.
All right, Secretary Azar, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. And, and on that nice nonpartisan note, uh, I will bid you farewell. Thank you Thanks, so much, Jake. sir. Now let's talk about one state that took aggressive steps early on to confront the coronavirus efforts that now appear to be paying off health-wise, though the economic consequences are causing real pain that could last for years. Joining me now, the Democratic governor of California, Gavin Newsom. Governor Newsom, thanks so much uh, for joining us. So you're facing a $54 billion budget deficit. I asked White House advisor Kevin Hassett about whether the White House would support money for states. I want you to take a listen to what he told me. I think that it's just premature. We think that we have a little moment, the luxury of a moment to learn about what's going on. President Trump has signaled that while he doesn't want to bail out the states, he's willing to help uh, cover some of the unexpected COVID expenses. So the position of the White House seems to be that any money for states would be premature. What's your response, sir? Well, it's not charity. I mean, a a year ago, Jake, we were running a $21.5 billion surplus. Uh, And here we are at $54.3 billion budget deficit that is directly COVID-induced. We have been managing our budget effectively, efficiently, paying down uh, our long-term pension obligations. We had a bond rating that went up twice last year, the highest in decades. So we're not looking for charity. We're not looking for handouts. It's social responsibility at a time when states, not just California, large and small, all across this country, cities and counties, large and small, all across this country, are facing unprecedented budgetary stress. Uh, It is incumbent upon the federal government to help support these states through this difficult time. Well, the House passed a bill on Friday night with money for states, but Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has suggested it's dead on arrival. Uh, Can you explain what you think will happen to California if the federal government doesn't give you money to help you out? Well, uh, the same folks that say it's dead on arrival, I hope they'll consider this. The next time they want to salute and celebrate our heroes, our first responders, our police officers and firefighters, uh, consider uh, the fact that they are the first ones will be laid off by cities and counties. Uh, the folks that are out there, the true heroes of this pandemic, are healthcare workers and nurses. Uh, those county health systems have been ravaged. Their budgets have been devastated and depleted. The budget counts depleted since this pandemic. They're the first ones uh, to be laid off. So we've got to square our rhetoric with the reality. 20% of Americans are unemployed. Uh, In a few weeks, over 100,000 Americans will have lost their lives. These are Depression-era unemployment numbers, and we have to own up to that. So I'm not looking to score cheap political points, but I do want to make this point, Jake. Uh, We have an obligation, a moral and ethical obligation to American citizens all across this country to help support cities, states, and counties. You talked about the budget surplus that California had. There are some who say... Uh, that California wasn't in great financial shape. Stanford professor Joe Nation, a former Democratic state lawmaker, says that California has more than a trillion dollars in pension debt. And just six months before the crisis began, he warned that, quote, even a mini recession in which pension systems assets fall by one half, great recession levels, would be a horrible development. Schools and municipal governments would be forced to cut even further. Taxpayers would be asked to chip in more. Public employees would face layoffs and salary cuts unquote. How much of the crisis you're in right now is due to pre-existing financial obligations? None. That $54.3 billion is direct result of COVID-19. Just a few months ago, I introduced my January budget uh, with, again, a projected surplus. We paid off 100 percent uh, of our wall of debt we had paid, uh, we had inherited uh, over seven or eight years ago. We were using $9.13 billion of the surplus last year to pay down long-term pension obligations. Uh, so Joe is absolutely right uh, as it relates to the unfunded liabilities that states all across this country are facing, but it relates to the operating accounts of the state. Uh, they were never healthier. The reserves never higher. And so this is a direct result of a global pandemic manifest 
protesting uh, in different ways all across this world, around the globe, and across this country. And so uh, I, with respect, will just uh, caution people to look at this as a frame of charity when it's fundamental purpose of government. It's to protect people's safety and to protect their well-being. This is a moment where we need to meet the moment head on and acknowledge this is not a red issue or a blue issue. This has impacted every state in America. President Trump announced a new initiative on Friday uh, to produce hundreds of millions of doses of a yet-to-be-discovered coronavirus vaccine. Hopefully by the end of 2020, he says, do you anticipate that the U.S. will have a vaccine by the end of the year? Are, are you confident also that the U.S. has the infrastructure in place to not only manufacture it, but, but administer it? I'm confident there may be uh, what we approximate is a vaccine, but I am very concerned about the second latter part of your question, which is the manufacturing capacity at scale, global manufacturing capacity at scale, and the logistics and the administration uh, of that vaccine. And so uh, I, I am I am hopeful, and I think it's good to be optimistic, but we have to also be sober by the reality of the application. Even if you have a vaccine, its ability to be distributed uh, is challenging, and all Always, we must be considerate of an infrastructure that protects the most vulnerable, uh, not just the most well-heeled and connected. I want to ask you, there, there, is a, there seem to be a lot of individuals out there in your state and across the country, certainly in Washington, D.C., that think all of this was an overreaction, that the death toll, uh, while bad, uh, was never going to be in the millions, and, and that people like you who took aggressive action uh, really were overreacting and harming your economies. Um, in, in the name of, of precaution, but in a way that was unnecessary, what's your response to them? Because you see them all over the country, people like this who are frustrated about the economic pain. Look, I, I deeply understand that the, the, the stress and the anxiety that people have, that entire dreams have been torn asunder uh, because of these shutdowns and their savings counts depleted and their credit ratings destroyed. And so I'm deeply empathetic to that and deeply understanding of where that anxiety and angst comes from. But with all the information we had at the time, it wasn't just Democrats and Republicans. It, it was universal that people felt we needed to meet the moment head on uh, and do the one thing that non-pharmaceutically we can do, and that was physically distance from one another, practice social distancing. Now, the president himself on down, uh, Democrats, Republicans all throughout this state and this nation uh, in those early stages felt that was appropriate. Uh, the question is, how do you toggle back and make meaningful modifications to the stay-at-home order? And that's where we're now in this point of friction uh, and a lot of frustration uh, in cities, counties, not just states all across the country. Let, let, let's talk about California schools. Um, your superintendent says reopening will be up to individual school districts. Uh, some of those districts are considering partial remote learning, smaller class sizes, a staggered schedule. Um, President Trump has vowed that, quote, schools are going to be open. Um, is he right? Will, will school, schools in California be open this fall? Uh, I think some schools will not be, many schools will be, uh, and it's all conditioned on our ability to not only keep our children safe, but to keep staff and faculty safe, to keep the community uh, safe. So it's all predicated uh, on data, on science, uh, on not just observed evidence, the reality on the ground. Uh, each part of California is unique and distinctive. Each region, each region of the United States is unique and distinctive. And certain conditions will present themselves favorably, some unfavorably. So I think it's a, it's a question uh, that is a difficult one to answer in absolute terms. There's nuance, uh, but we are moving forward in hope and expectation uh, that we can start that school year very strategically and methodically, again, based upon the health uh, as a prime frame of reference in terms of those decisions. The CDC issued a warning this week about this new multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children that's associated with coronavirus. Several children in California are suffering from this disease, as you know. Uh, what can you tell us about this new disease? How worried do you think parents should be? Well, we're monitoring it very closely. We haven't seen the kind of outbreaks, and, and that's on the basis of the monitoring uh, of that. Uh, we are not seeing uh, the outbreaks we've seen in other parts of the country. But look, I'm a father of four 
kids uh, and deeply anxious about their health and safety as every parent watching is as well. And so it's just another proof point. Uh, those that claim we know what we know about this pandemic, it was 90 days ago, uh, no one even knew the word COVID, uh, let alone uh, what coronas actually meant. Uh, and so we are in a situation where uh, every day we have to be humble uh, by what we don't know, and we have to be open to argument, interested in evidence. You cannot be ideological about this disease, and nor, forgive me for belaboring, uh, can we be naive. If history doesn't repeat itself, it certainly rhymes. And the realities of previous pandemics around the globe and those we experienced in the United States suggest not just second waves, but potential third waves. Uh, and so one has to be very, very sober uh, as we move forward to this next round of reopenings uh, and do so with the modifications that required of the moment. Uh, and I think a humbleness uh, of spirit on all sides of the political aisle that's also needed at this moment. You've said mass gatherings would be negligible at best until there's a vaccine. Can you paint a picture of what life is going to look like in the fall in California? Will there not be concerts, no sporting events, no weddings? Well, the reality is about 75% of our economy is already open in the state of California with modifications. Uh, we've seen dozens of counties that have moved uh, more quickly through what we refer to in this state as stage two, uh, where restaurants are reopening, office manufacturing, logistics, warehousing operations, and the like. But it's with modifications. So when you look for the future, you gotta paint a picture of those modifications, uh, where people are practicing physical distancing, or should be, where people are putting face coverings on uh, when they otherwise are coming into contact with strangers. But the idea of having stadiums filled with 80 plus thousand people, strangers, coming together across their differences, as much as we want to see that happen in the spirit and the pride that comes uh, from people coming together in that respect, uh, the health consequences could be profound and devastating and set back all the progress we've made. So we are moving into that very cautiously, working with all the major leagues uh, across the spectrum uh, to make sure that we are not promoting things or promising things we can't deliver. Tesla CEO Elon Musk defied uh, California's stay-at-home orders this week to open his Fremont plant, which has more than 10,000 workers. Ultimately, the county blinked and let him open that plant. Democratic state lawmaker uh, Lorena Gonzalez responded, quote, we should be outraged by a billionaire that has gotten so much from its partnership in California but continues to put workers in unsafe conditions, continues to union bust, continues to wave his finger at California as if we're supposed to allow that and let him throw his temper tantrum, unquote. Um, cutting through some of the some of the rhetoric there, is that lawmaker right that Tesla got preferential treatment here? No, uh, they they moved. They challenged uh, the stay-at-home order uh, that Alameda County had in place, and I'll remind you, the state had lifted the manufacturing uh, requirements. So other manufacturers around the state were able to operate. Alameda County had not. They intended to uh, on Monday, on the 18th of May. Uh, they tested that, they came together, uh, and they were able to work out a framework of modifications to keep their workers safe uh, that they believe will have uh, this issue resolved by as early as Monday. Uh, and that's the spirit of cooperation. And I say that to make this point. We're being challenged hundreds of examples uh, just not as high profile as Tesla. Uh, all across this country, every single day, governors are being challenged, local health officials being challenged, and it's a spirit of collaboration. Uh, those that continue to pursue things that put people at harm's risk, uh, you have to have stepped up efforts of enforcement and sanction, uh, but that was not the case uh, in respect to Tesla. Uh, they did work with Alameda County partners, and Alameda County health officials are satisfied that they are likely to reach those thresholds as early as Monday. All right, California Governor Gavin Newsom, thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Stay safe. Great to be with you. Thanks. As governors take the lead on trying to curb the spread of coronavirus, one Republican from the Midwest is earning rave reviews from a huge majority of his citizens. He has an approval rating of 86%. Joining me now, Ohio's Republican Governor Mike DeWine. Governor DeWine, good to see you again. Uh, let's talk about Ohio. Barbershops and nail salons opened on Friday in your state. Campgrounds are opening this week. Swimming pools, gyms, sports leagues can resume next week. But you have said you're still concerned about this virus. How likely is it, do you think, that a few weeks from now you're going to see a spike of new cases in Ohio and you might need to put some of the measures back in place? 
Well, we certainly hope we don't see that. Um, you know, what I've said to Ohioans uh, this week is that so much is in every individual's control, 11.7 million people in Ohio. We've got to continue to have uh, keep the space. Uh, I've really urged people to wear a mask when they go out in public. Every employee in Ohio uh, is wearing a, a mask today. So this is the way I've described it, Jake, is this is really probably the most crucial time, the most dangerous time, because we are opening back up, because we have to open back up. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that creates more exposure, uh, more opportunity for this virus to spread. So people have to add that extra layer. We're asking them to put the mask on, uh, do all the things that you know everyone now knows that you have to do to, to keep that uh, separated and to slow this down. Uh, if you look at our numbers, we're at a plateau, candidly. We've been at a plateau for about a month in regard to hospitalization, the same way in regard to death, same way in regard to new cases. So we wish we were going down. Uh, mm -hmm. Our replication rate is about one to one, which is a lot better than it was. But, uh, you know, we would like to get that, that down as well. So we're trying to do two things at once and uh, we're working at it. And so, Governor, keeping that in mind, everything you just said, I want you to take a look at these pictures from a bar in Columbus, Ohio on Friday. This is the first day that outdoor dining businesses uh, were allowed to reopen. That's a pretty big crowd of people. They don't seem to be wearing masks. They don't seem to be separated from each other, six feet or whatever, not a lot of distance between patrons. You've seen these images. Does it concern you? Absolutely. Uh, I saw those images um, very early. Uh, we had people there last night. Uh, the good news is that uh, the ownership, uh, people running the bar, uh, seemed to get control of it last night. We didn't have to issue any citations. We did issue a citation for another bar in, in Columbus. Uh, and candidly, you know, we've worked with the Attorney General, uh, David Yost, and we're going to do whatever we have to do if these things, you know, are in fact occur across Ohio, wherever they occur. But ultimately, it's going to come to Ohioans doing what Ohioans have done for the last two months. And that is, um, you know, by and large, done exactly what they should do. Try to keep the distance. Um, you know, we're encouraging more people to wear a mask, uh, as I said. But uh, it's going to be really be determined by what we do uh, in the next month or so. What, what the fall looks like when we hope to be able to open school is going to depend on what we're doing right now and in the next month or so. This week, Dr. Anthony Fauci cautioned against parts of the U.S. reopening too quickly. I want you to take a listen to what he said about schools reopening in the fall. I don't have an easy answer to that. As we get into the, the period of time with the fall about reopening the schools, I would imagine that situations regarding school will be very different in one region versus another. What would keep you from reopening schools in September? Well, if we start really seeing a spike uh, in, in the spread go very significantly up, I mean, I think what sometimes people miss uh, is that the schools were closed primarily because of spread issue. Um, you know, we have seen the inflammation uh, that you have talked about on your show today. Uh, we don't know how widespread that is uh, or how big a problem. But basically what we found with this COVID-19 is that kids are not at great risk, but they are spreaders. They can get it. They can not show the symptoms and they can spread it. So you close schools down. We close schools down very early. And we did it because not not because you specifically worry about the kids, but you have 30 kids going to in, in a classroom. One kid is in there. He's got no symptoms, but he's carrying it. Now you got maybe 25 kids now are going back to their families and it just spreads and multiplies. So so that's the concern. What I've asked the schools to do uh, is to assume they're going back, but to come up with all kinds of alternatives. Uh, assume if you're back, for example, how do you. Uh, achieve some sort of distancing? How do you do things uh, in regard to when kids go to the cafeteria, when younger kids may go to a playground? All of those things, uh, you know, what is the trying to follow the best health guidance and come up with very specific plans that are unique to your your school, but are guided by uh, the local health department and guided by the by health guidance. But we hope to be 
open uh, in, in, in August uh, when school starts back up in most places in Ohio, but we don't know yet, frankly. Yeah, but that's that's in the fall. Uh, May 31st, coming right up, child care centers in Ohio are slated to open. Now, I understand you're going to be taking precautions. The people running the child care centers are going to be taking precautions. Smaller groups of children in each room, uh, much more hand washing. Uh, but as you acknowledge, we, we've already seen uh, reported cases of children in Ohio experiencing this new phenomenon, this horrific thing, multi-system inflammatory syndrome <clears throat> in children. It could be linked to coronavirus. How much does that horrible illness weigh on your decision for May 31st, the child care centers, especially given how little we know about COVID-19? Well, Jake, all of this weighs on me. Uh, you know, Fran and I have eight kids. We have 24 grandkids. Uh, we have kids who are going back to be going back to school in the fall. What we try to do uh, and what we did do uh, in, in regard to the child care, we pushed it back. Uh, it's another couple of weeks. Uh, we think we will have the lowest ratio in the country, the smallest number of classes, smallest number of kids in, in, in a room. Uh, we think we have the, the best practices that can be put in place in regard to child care. But we, we, we're going to monitor all of this. Uh, it's been pointed out on your show already today several times. This, this is a virus that we're still learning a lot about. We don't know a great deal about it. We know more today than we did two months ago or three months ago. So we're, we're looking at the numbers every single day. Uh, we're getting reports from our health departments around the state. We have 113 local health departments. So all of this is a work in progress. Um, you know, we made the decision to start opening up Ohio and about 90% of our economy is, is back open because we thought it was a huge risk not to open, but we also know it's a huge risk in opening. And we go into this with our uh, eyes wide open. Uh, we're prepared to do what we have to do uh, to pull back. But what I've said to uh, my fellow Ohioans uh, on Friday and Thursday, uh, particularly uh, when we did our press conference, I said, look, um, you know, we don't want to be like some of the countries we've seen where they shut down, opened up, and now are starting to shut down again. That is not where we want to be. And it's in everyone's collective hands, you know, how we act in the next month or two whether or not we're going to be in that position or, or, or not. All right. Best of luck to you, Governor Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio. We always appreciate your time. We'll Thank see you, you again much. soon. Thanks, Jake. Thank you. As the nation is focused on the pandemic, a, a judge is debating a request by the Justice Department to drop charges against retired General Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor who President Trump fired in 2017 for lying about his foreign contacts. Now two Republican senators have released a list of Obama administration officials who might have known about the intelligence on Flynn. It's unclear from what they released. The president is making some outrageous accusations against President Obama with zero evidence whatsoever. But joining me now to talk about this and much more, Republican Senator from Wisconsin, uh, Ron Johnson. Uh, Senator, thanks for joining us. I hope you're well and healthy. Um, I, I wanna uh, have you take a look at these images that we're seeing out of Wisconsin uh, with residents flooding bars after the stay-at-home order was overturned. Uh, I think everyone agrees we need to find a way for the country to reopen and stop the economic suffering. Uh, but <clears throat> health experts say that this must be done in a way that keeps people safe and ultimately prevents potentially more uh, death and health issues and more economic suffering. What do you think when you see these packed bars uh, in violation of CDC guidelines in your home state? Well, I, I certainly see a small subset of Wisconsinites celebrating a little, little freedom. Uh, we've all been pent up, we've all been frustrated, and so I think they, they took that occasion. But you know, what I see in Wisconsin is primarily people being very responsible, wearing masks in grocery stores, maintaining social distancing, uh, taking this disease as seriously as it really needs to be taken. So, yeah, I, mean, I, I realize those are, those are images that they concern probably all of us. Um, but again, uh, we, we do need to move to keep as much of our economy open as possible, but open it, is, uh, open up, it up safely and responsibly. I want to talk about inspectors general before we get to the unmasking memo. Um, when, when President Obama was in office, you and I would talk a lot about inspectors general. Uh, President Trump has now gotten rid of four inspectors general in one capacity or another, including on Friday, the State Department inspector general. Um, Senator Romney uh, called this, quote, a threat to accountable democracy and said it, quote, chills the independence essential to their purpose. What's your response? I remember you being a real advocate for inspector general, inspectors general and independent inspectors general 
when President Obama was in office. For, I am an advocate for inspector generals and as the chairman of the, the General Oversight Committee of the United States Senate, we rely on an awful lot of their work. Uh, I think their independence needs to remain within their agencies. Yeah, I, I'm very mindful of the fact that uh, inspector generals don't work for Congress. They actually work for the administration. They're, they're part of the executive branch, a, a different co-equal branch of government, and they, they work and serve the President of the United States. So I take a slightly different view in terms of what they should be independent from. They need to retain their independence within the agency so they can uh, do inspections and investigations and provide that uh, to their leadership, but primarily to the president. And so they, they serve at the president's will, and that is true of, of every inspector general. The other thing I found out, uh, Jake, is that not all inspector generals are created equal. In our oversight work, uh, we've already had two inspector generals resign because of some of the corruption we were uncovering. They, they left town ahead of the posse, so to speak. Uh, and so th there are inspector generals that take, bring a political agenda, as, as well as uh, those that do a phenomenal jobs. So uh, they're not all equal, but in the end, they serve the, the pleasure of the president, and he's got the authority to, uh, to hire and terminate. Well, no one questions whether or not he has the, the authority to do so, but I, I really have to say I find it hard to believe that if President Obama had gotten rid of four inspector generals, inspectors general in six weeks, uh, that you would have the same attitude that you seem to have right now. J Jake, again, two of those inspector generals under President Obama resigned under the scrutiny of, of my oversight. So, again, I, you know, I'm not going to speak specifically to this case with, uh, you know, quite honestly, with this Inspector General. Both Senator Grassley and I have had a real problem with his responsiveness to, in particular, one oversight request. I spoke with senior officials both in the White House and the State Department. I understand their reasoning. Uh, I don't know if they're going to provide a more robust rationale for why they do it, but I understand it. I, I don't disagree with it. Uh, I don't think anything this administration could say is going to satisfy some people. There will still be people huffing and puffing and stomping their feet. But again, it is the president's decision whether or not to hire or terminate uh, an inspector general. Well, what was their reasoning? Because all the public knows is that uh, this uh, acting inspector general was investigating uh, whether or not Secretary of State Pompeo was uh, misusing uh, a political appointee to, to do personal errands for him. That's according to Democratic aides on Capitol Hill. Uh, and then a senior administration official has said Pompeo asked Trump to remove the, this inspector general investigating him, and President Trump did so. What are they telling you that, that makes you feel like you understand Again, their reason? I'm, I'm not going to discuss my private conversations with senior administration officials, but my guess is this will all come out. Congress will be able to do whatever site it chooses to do. I'm sure the Democrats in the House will call in Mr. Linick, and he'll be able to testify, and he'll be able to tell his story. And my guess is the administration will hopefully have an opportunity to tell their side of the story as well. I'm not, I'm not crying big crocodile tears over this termination. Let's put it that way. Let's talk about the list of Obama administration officials uh, that you and Senator Grassley released this week. Uh, just so our viewers understand, um, in 2016, the same time the U.S. was investigating Russian interference in the 2016 elections, several members of the Obama administration requested the name of a U.S. citizen who appeared in various intelligence reports. Uh, this person, in the cases that you've cited, turned out to be General Flynn. It's called unmasking. It's not un uncommon. Um, you praise the director of national intelligence uh, for his transparency in declassifying these names. Um, I'm wondering if you would be willing to also push for transparency when it comes to the transcripts of these calls, especially the calls between General Flynn and Russian Ambassador Kislyak, who seem, that seems to be part of this. Have you asked for those transcripts to be released as well? Not yet, but we've just really begun our investigation in this particular aspect. This, Jake, this is one piece of the puzzle. I'm all for transparency. I think we way overclassify information, and as a result, there's all kinds of wrongdoing that can occur, and the American public never has a clue about what's happening. But what I'm very heartened by is we finally have a, a, a logjam broken in terms of Congress getting information to conduct our oversight. You know, I've been on this case really in some, some way, shape, or form since March 2015 with the Hillary Clinton email scandal, which kind of morphed into the whole Russian collusion because the same, the same cast of characters. But what just got released, because I had a staff member that went down into the secure area of the Senate, went through the FISA report in, with a fine-tooth comb, found four footnotes that completely rebutted the main text of the FISA report, showing that the FBI knew full, full well that the Russian disinformation was actually part of the Steele dossier, and the FBI knew it. 
The FBI knew full well that there was no collusion by the end of January, and yet they engineered through James Comey the, the appointment of a special counsel. Right. There is an awful lot of unanswered questions that need to be answered, and it's going to require transparency, yes. So I am all for transparency. I think the American people need to deserve and hear the full truth, and that's what I'm going to try and get. Okay, so in addition to the transcripts, which hopefully you will push for to be released as well, um, I'm wondering, did you also ask to declassify the reports that justify why these unmaskings were requested and approved? Because just listing the names and the dates, we don't, and, and the fact that it, it, it resulted in the unmasking of General Flynn, we don't know what this is about. Obviously, he was an unregistered foreign agent for Turkey at the time. He later registered uh, retroactively. So there are a whole bunch of questions that people might have had. Are, are you going to ask for, for that to be released as well, the justifications? Yes, I want all this information to come out. One thing we have found out is that the FBI was ready to close the file on General Flynn on January 4th uh, because they had found nothing. You, mean, you mentioned all those other possibilities, but they didn't find anything wrong, so they're going to close the file until the seventh floor. That's James Comey's office, kind of called down, talked to Peter Strzok and said, hey, let's keep this open. Then they start talking about the Logan Act, and apparently President Obama was aware of this as well. So there are an awful lot of unanswered questions. Going back to the text that I continue to highlight, December 15, 2016, struck text page, think our sisters are leaking like mad, scorned, worried, and political, they're kicking into overdrive. Our committee conducted a, a, a study, showed 120, mm -hmm. 125 leaks in the first 126 days, 62 had to do with national security, that compares with eight under the Obama administration. Something is amiss here, something was going wrong. I don't know exactly what happened, but we're getting a clear picture of it. I think the chickens are coming home to roost, and hopefully myself, with uh, hopefully other senators, Chuck Grass has been a real partner, we'll get what to the exactly truth. Is uh, look, obviously, there, there are questions about uh, FBI behavior. Peter Strzok uh, was fired. Uh, Lisa Page resigned, etc. James Comey's no longer on the scene. But, but what exactly are you alleging uh, by the Obama administration? Because I have yet to see any facts at all uh, supporting this grand conspiracy that the Trump administration is pushing. Well, well, Jake, it's because a lot of members of the media haven't been asking the questions, haven't been looking. You know, let's face it. Uh, there, were, there were selective leaks. They ramped up this entire Russian collusion hoax, and it was a hoax. And who's the recipients of these leaks? It was members of the media, about, 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 hoax, 18, though, about 18 different because outlets. There, what I, what, I, what I'd love to see is I'd like to see members, I would like to see members of the press actually start looking into all these leaks and how this story got spun up that resulted in a special counsel and put this country through about three years so of, of Senator, a mini constitutional Senator, crisis. That's what I'd like to see. Senator, it's, it's not a hoax that the Russians attempted to interfere in the 2016 election. Yes, they did. You they, know that. They, it's they not did. a hoax. They, they put Russian disinformation into the Steele dossier that was bought and paid for through cutouts now, for the they, Hillary Clinton campaign. That is what we the, found out, Jake. Sir, you got to look at the evidence. Look at those footnotes that we I'm not declassified. I'm not, That's the I'm, truth. Not dis I'm not disputing it. I'm not disputing it, uh, the idea that we don't know what was in this Steele dossier uh, but, but in, and how it got there and whether it was disinformation. But that's not what I'm talking about. You're suggesting that the entire Russia interference campaign was a hoax, and it was not. The Senate Intelligence Committee, run by a Republican, has concluded it was not. Every single inspector general uh, of the intelligence community and of, of no, all these agencies Jake, has said the, the it hoax, was not a hoax. The, the hoax Russians what, were trying to interfere. The, the hoax is that there was collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. The disinformation that Russia put into the 2016 campaign flowed through the Steele dossier and Hillary Clinton. No, I'm, I'm not denying that Russia tried to intervene in our election. They've been doing it probably since their founding. Uh, that's what they do. I'm, I'm chairman of the force. Right, but Senate. Can we get back to unmasking, though? Sure. If we could get back to unmasking for a second. So unmasking, as you know, uh, is not uncommon. It happens. Uh, I'm sure you also know that unmasking has actually increased under the Trump administration yeah. uh, compared to the Obama administration. Uh, against, again, there's nothing nefarious with it. Uh, people charged with national security want to see who individual Russians and others who are talking, they're talking to unnamed Americans. They want to know who the Americans are. Uh, that's, there's nothing, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. If this is something that can be abused, something you're concerned about, are you using any of your oversight capacity to investigate what the Trump administration is, is doing as well? Almost 17,000 uh, unmasking requests in 2018. 
Right. I saw that report that under Obama's last couple of years it was under 10,000, and now the last couple of years it's, it's been 16, 17,000, and that troubles me. So absolutely, I'm going to be looking into that. I want to know exactly what happened. You know, is it usual and customary for, for uh, the inner circle within the White House to be requesting unmasking, or is this primarily done within the intelligence agencies? I want to get all that information. Uh, I, I want the American people to hear the full and complete truth. The last thing is, sir, you have not made the allegation that the Trump administration is making, which is that President Obama committed crimes. You haven't said anything along those lines. But your work, your requesting of this information uh, of uh, the national, uh, the director of national intelligence, Rick Grinnell, uh, and again, I'm, I'm pro-transparency, true, release it all. But your work is being cited as, an exam as uh, evidence for this crackpot conspiracy theory. Does that bother you? Well, again, you keep calling it crackpot conspiracy theory. I'm just trying to find out what happened. What I do know, because we finally got these uh, records out of the National Archives, what President Obama saw when he got those uh, uh, emails from Hillary Clinton was not HillaryClinton.Senate uh, or StateDepartment.gov.classified. It was ClintonEmail.com. President Obama knew she was using a private server, and Section 793F, the, the section that I think, okay. that, that I I think Hillary it. Clinton violated, also includes knowledge okay. of misuse of intelligence. So I've always thought that okay. was one, one of the main reasons they covered up for Hillary Clinton and, and exonerated her. Okay. All right, Senator just Johnson, truth, stay healthy. Truth, I really appreciate your time. Stay today. healthy. Take care. I thank you, sir. While most of the nation has been focused on the economic and health consequences of this horrific pandemic, President Trump has been at least partly focused on purging independent inspectors general from his administration, most recently on Friday night when State Department Inspector General Steve Linick was shown the door. This follows the president ousting the Inspector General of the Intelligence Community, Michael Atkinson, who had followed the law when it came to the whistleblower complaint about the president pressuring Ukraine to dig up dirt on the Bidens. The president seeking a replacement for the woman who ran the office of the Inspector General of the Department of Health and Human Services, Christy Grimm, Grimm issued a report in March reporting that a survey of hospitals in the U.S. suggested widespread and severe shortages of PPE, coronavirus testing supplies, and more. The president pushing out acting Pentagon Inspector General Glenn Fine, a man with a reputation for independence who was leading oversight of $2.2 trillion for coronavirus relief, but will no longer be able to serve in that role because of the president's dismissal of him. To say nothing, of course, of President Trump pushing out whistleblowers such as Dr. Rick Bright or those who offer independent voices willing to speak truth to power, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, Ambassador Yovanovitch, and on and on and on. In Linux's case, the Inspector General of the State Department had been investigating whether Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had been misusing a political appointee to perform personal errands, according to a Democratic congressional aide. Inspectors General are there during Democratic and Republican administrations. They're there to protect your money and to make sure your government is operating efficiently and free of corruption. The president does not want them there, and he's getting away with it because all of the previously outspoken voices in favor of inspectors general and their independence, such as Senator Chuck Grassley, who for decades had stood up for whistleblowers, all of those voices have been muted if not outright silenced. Late Saturday, one Republican senator, Mitt Romney of Utah, did offer a harsh rebuke, calling the move by the president a threat to accountable democracy and a fissure in the constitutional balance of power. But Romney, sadly, at least as of now, stands alone. In short, one check on the executive branch, the Senate, has not only too often forsaken its oversight responsibilities, it is now allowing the president to remove another layer of oversight by purging inspectors general who are independent and who think their job is to work for you and not for him. He's sending a message to inspectors general, one former IG told me. Do your job at your peril. Moreover, the former IG notes, Linick is being replaced by an ambassador. Loyalty to Trump above all else. I've been covering Washington, D.C. for a long time now, and one thing I've noticed is that when one party destroys a norm, it seldom comes back. 
When the other party comes to control, which inevitably happens, that party takes advantage of the new power. They usually push it even further. So while Republicans in Congress sit back cowardly and don't raise a peep, keep in mind, this is not just about President Trump's unprecedented war on accountability. This is about the kind of nation we will have after President Trump leaves office, whether in January or 2025. It will be a world where watchdogs are replaced by lapdogs. It already is becoming that world. And that doesn't serve anyone except whoever is in power. And you will have only President Trump and the people in Congress and the media who sold you out so as to curry favor with him to blame. Finally, from us today, we want to take a moment to send our condolences this morning to the family of the legendary Phyllis George, a former Miss America who went on to break barriers as a pioneering female sports broadcaster. She was a beautiful soul, a wonderful woman, and a beloved mother to our senior White House correspondent, Pamela Brown, and her brother, Lincoln. May her memory be a blessing. What a horrible loss. Thank you for spending your Sunday morning with us. Fareed Zakaria starts right now. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.